everybody. My name is Mark. If I've not met you before, I'm one of the ministers at All Saints Woodford Wells, as well as the minister of St Andrews Woodford Green. So a big welcome to you, uh, whoever you are and wherever you find yourself uh, as you listen to this message. I hope that this will be a time where we can really be inspired by God's word uh, and experience a fresh infilling of his spirit so that we can witness to his love uh, in the world around us. So let's pray for the grace to do just that. Father, we thank you for this time. And we ask, Lord, as we look at your word together, that you would inspire us, you convict us, you would excite us. And we pray too that even during this time, you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and empower us for the work of ministry and of mission. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them speaking in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's Acts chapter two, the first 21 verses, uh, speaking of the day of Pentecost. Uh, now we read, don't we, how John the Baptist identified Jesus as the one who would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus then uh, identified himself as the one who would fill his disciples with the Holy Spirit, that he would, after his ascension, go up into heaven and that he would pour out the Holy Spirit on them. Uh, but that they had to wait uh, for this to happen. Jesus was very clear that this was a really good thing. It was really good news that this was going to happen, uh, but also that it was vitally important in order that the disciples could continue the work that he had been doing, the ushering in of the kingdom of God, 
uh, and they're specifically proclaiming the good news of forgiveness of sins through Jesus' blood because of what he'd done through his death and resurrection. Jesus was very clear that his disciples needed the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that he'd given them to do. And it's also very clear that we too likewise, likewise need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that same work that God has given us to do in our generation. The baton has been passed on and we too have the role of being those who fulfil the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded us, proclaiming the good news of forgiveness from sin through Jesus' blood. And so as we think about what it means to continue to do that, let's look then at why it's so important that we are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does the fire of the Holy Spirit accomplish in our lives? Why is it so important? Why was Jesus uh, so clear on this and that it needed to happen? Well, I've got a few things here that all conveniently begin with the word P so we can remember them. Uh, and the first one is passion. We see, don't we, uh, in the life of Peter that he was crestfallen after he'd let Jesus down, after he denied that he knew him. And Jesus obviously mercifully restored Peter and even gave him the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus three times to kind of mirror and, uh, in a sense, displace the denial that he had made but with this positive affirmation. But we see this man who'd been defeated. He was crestfallen. And uh, on the day of Pentecost, when the spirit fills him, he's so full of passion and boldness as he preaches the good news of Jesus. And we see just that passion and that zeal in the life of Jesus and the disciples after they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we likewise need that passion to be stirred in our hearts, don't we? We need to be people that are so full of passion for the Lord, people that just want to see his kingdom come in fullness, people that want to see the lost come to know him. We need to be people who are just sold out for God, that he's just worth our lives. And we want to spend ourselves on, on worshipping him and serving him and seeing his name glorified. And the Holy Spirit is able to create that passion and stir that passion in us. The second P is purity. Fire speaks of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Isaiah 6 and verse 6 to 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So we see this live coal and this image of fire as a purging, as a refining uh, force in our lives. And so the fire of Pentecost, the fire of the Holy Spirit is a refiner's fire. It's a purifying fire. Passion then, purity, also presence. Jesus said, didn't he, even as uh, he instructed his disciples and gave them the Great Commission, he said, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's confusing for him to say this and then uh, sort of ascend into heaven, wasn't it? Kind of a contradiction in terms. But he knew full well and he'd assured them that when he uh, went up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, he was going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. So that was part of this uh, fulfilment of that assurance that he would be with them always. So the Holy Spirit coming is uh, the fulfilment of that and his presence with us even to the end of the age. Passion then, purity, presence, uh, but also a final P, power. I find a, a, an illustration that someone shared with me 
uh, of a glove to be quite a helpful one. We know, don't we, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Judges chapter 6, verse 34, it speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon Gideon. And a literal translation of Judges 6.34 is that the Spirit of God clothed himself with Gideon. It's the same meaning as a person putting on clothes. And so you could paraphrase it that the Spirit of God put Gideon on like a glove. It's a very striking image, isn't it? If I were to hold up in front of you now a glove that without my hand in it and uh, asked it to do things, asked it to kind of give me a high five or shake someone's hand or pick someone up, the glove would be completely incapable of doing that. But if I were to put my hand inside the glove, it could do all those things. It could give a high five, could shake a hand, could pick something up. And it's the same with us. Of ourselves, we're not able to do the work that God has given us to do. But when he fills us with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit puts us on like a glove. He gives us the power to do the very things that he has called us to do, the power to fulfill that great commission. So we need the fire of the Holy Spirit because he gives us passion, purity, the presence of the Lord and power. And we need all of these things because of the commission that God has given us. It's for the sake of the world that we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. Acts chapter one of verse eight reads, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we need the Holy Spirit, don't we, in order that we can be witnesses to the saving love of Christ, in order that we can preach the good news to all creation, in order that we can share as those first disciples did with the world around us, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost, that was after a period of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus had actually said that they had to wait. In Luke 24 and verse 49, Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Again, in Acts chapter one, verses four to five, it reads, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he, this is Jesus, gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they had to wait. There was that uh, command of Jesus to wait for the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that we refer to the commands of Jesus sometimes as uh, as sacraments. We think of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me or the sacrament of baptism. Uh, but we don't make such a big deal, do we, of the sacrament or the command of Jesus to wait for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has made it very clear to us if we are to personalise Pentecost and avail ourselves of that same power that the early church uh, gained through the Holy Spirit at work in them. We too need to be people who wait for the Lord to empower us before we then go and witness to the world around us. So what does waiting for the Holy Spirit look like? This isn't just a passive waiting, like when you're I know, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for a TV programme to start or waiting for a bus. We read in the scriptures that this was very purposeful waiting. And there are three things that I'd like to identify as things that we can be doing as they did as we wait for this empowerment of God's spirit. So the first one, prayer. In Acts 1, 14, it says they all joined together 
constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Secondly, worship. We read in Luke 24, verse 53, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And then a third thing, unity. In Acts 2, verse 1, it says when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So waiting for those disciples looked like prayer, being constant in prayer, worship, continually praising God and unity, being together in one place. And of course, we are part of a body, aren't we? We're not just lone rangers doing our own thing for God. Uh, but even as we need a personal infilling of the Holy Spirit, we do that as part of a community of faith. So we need to be united uh, in our seeking of the presence and the power and the purity and the passion of the Holy Spirit uh, and a unity in recognising this is a command of Jesus that we need to honour in our generation. So personalising Pentecost, what does it look like for us to receive this amazing gift? I'd just like to, uh, you know, read a couple of those verses that I've already read to you, which makes the point that this gift of the Holy Spirit really is for all of us. So verses 17 to 19 of the Acts 2 reading. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So we see that this is for all people, whether you're a son or a daughter, a young person, an old person, uh, a servant, men and women. Everyone's included in the mix as being those who are to receive this gift of the spirit. And even further on in Acts 2, in verses 38 to 39, uh, we read where it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So if the Lord has called you, and I'm sure he has, uh, we all have the opportunity to repent and turn to Christ and make him the centre of our lives. You and I are contenders or people who are able to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think it's important to acknowledge at this point uh, that there are different fillings with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people uh, don't seek or expect a kind of Pentecostal experience akin to what we read about in Acts 2 uh, because they just assume that, that, you know, they've got all that there is to have. Uh, we know from the scriptures, Paul tells us, doesn't he, uh, that we can only confess Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. So it's impossible to confess Jesus as Lord without uh, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And I found it really helpful that uh, a vineyard theologian called Derek Morthew, but not only him, other uh, theologians like Craig Keener and uh, even John Wimber uh, in his book, Power Evangelism and other things that he wrote. Uh, these people have made the point that there's a difference between uh, a filling of the Holy Spirit for conversion and a filling of the Holy Spirit or power to do the work of mission. Derek Morphew actually highlights that uh, both Luke and Paul use the language of baptism in the spirit, but they actually use that term baptism in the spirit to mean different things. So Derek Morphew points out that actually when Paul talks about a baptism in the Holy Spirit, 
he's talking about regeneration. He's talking about conversion. Uh, whereas when Luke uses the phrase, he's talking about prophetic empowerment. He's talking about empowerment to do the work of mission. And so these are different things. Interestingly, even Jesus, who was obviously born of the Holy Spirit, uh, was then filled with the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? Uh, in order to uh, go out into Galilee and to uh, proclaim the kingdom of God. But we also see in the life of the disciples, these sorts of two stages when it comes to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It was interesting that uh, we read in John, don't we? In fact, I ought to look at the verse rather than just ad-libbing it all. John 20, 22, it says, and with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we see in that resurrection appearance of Jesus, that he actually breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet this was before the day of Pentecost. Jesus spoke these words late in the first night after he appeared to them after his resurrection. It's a really interesting uh, thing because Jesus actually breathing on them uh, was really symbolic. We read in Genesis 2 verse 7, where it says, the Lord formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so just as the old creative order began with the breath of God, we see that the new creative order that Jesus was establishing began with his divine breath breathing on the disciples. First Corinthians 15 verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So when Jesus visited his disciples, uh, in that resurrection appearance and breathed on them the Holy Spirit. He was breathing on them the life of the new creation and they were regenerated. They were born again. They'd actually been touched by the Holy Spirit before as part of just following Jesus around and being part of his earthly ministry. But now they were born again. But he still told them after this experience of regeneration, they had to wait for the day of Pentecost. So he said, didn't he? I'm going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. We also see um, in Samaria uh, an interesting example of this sort of two stages of those who have heard the preaching. Uh, Philip preached in uh, Acts chapter eight uh, of Jesus and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This wasn't, you know, John the Baptist baptism. This was a baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is a shorthand uh, for the, the Trinitarian baptism that we read at the end of Matthew, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism into the name of the Jesus is like a shorthand of that. So this is Christian baptism. They'd, these were people that confessed Jesus as Lord. And yet when the apostles came later on, they discovered that they hadn't received uh, an infilling of the Holy Spirit for empowerment, for ministry. And so they corrected that by laying hands on them and praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. It's very easy to get hung up on uh, terminology and to create rules and things. Uh, and I think one of the really helpful things to remember is that it says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. And you might have heard preachers say many times, I'm sure, that this is talking about present continuous tense. In other words, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. So actually, whether you've uh, received a, an empowerment of the Holy Spirit for mission before or not. The, the truth is that God wants to continuously fill us with the Spirit. And even after the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts 4 and elsewhere that 
the disciples were again there were multiple fillings with the holy spirit so rather than getting hung up on sort of uh, terminology or creating sort of theological laws that you know scripture doesn't really give us uh scope to do but we often do that anyway don't we it's you know part of our wants to build rules and things um, actually scripture encourages us to go on being filled with the holy spirit in order that we can continue to do the work that god has given us to do in terms of actually being filled with the holy spirit what can we say about that well the only requirement to being filled with the holy spirit is that we've received jesus as our lord and saviour that's it this is a work of grace god wants us to fill us with his spirit we can't earn it we can't strive to receive it i've spoken about waiting for this to happen so you know we can take time out to pray to worship to be in unity with other believers as we seek the infilling of god's holy spirit but this is a work of grace nonetheless we can position ourselves to receive and uh, jack hayford who wrote a book on the baptism of the holy spirit uh, said something that I find quite helpful. He says that there are basic requirements of heart preparedness before Jesus pours out his spirit on us. He says that Jesus's terms are rooted in grace and so they don't have to do with achievement but with attitude. And he goes on to say these are the terms by which a person can receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Obedience, humility, purity and receptiveness. So in other words, wanting God's will, wanting God's way, wanting God's nature and wanting God's fullness, wanting God's will, his way, his nature and his fullness. And I think that's really helpful. He actually uses the example of Cornelius uh, to come up with those particular points. And as we think about the fire of the Holy Spirit, uh, it's good to be aware that there are things that work as effective fire extinguishes in our life that we can uh, the scripture tells us not to quench the spirit's fire, but there are ways in which we can mitigate against this infilling or continual infilling of God's spirit. Sometimes the things we do, the things we feel or say or think, these can inhibit the work of God in our hearts. So I've written some examples, sin, impatience, which obviously is sin, but sin is an overarching thing, uh, bad attitudes, offence, guilt, gossip unkindness, watching things that we shouldn't, lying, doing our own things. They're so not even necessarily bad things, but filling our time with things other than seeking the Lord, not doing the things that we should. There are various things that we can do, aren't there? You know, just that list is a snapshot that can quench the spirit's fire in our lives. And so it's really important that we, we confess our sins to God. He's so kind, isn't he, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as the scripture says, but to position ourselves to be people who hunger after God and want to be filled, who will prioritise seeking God and seeking his face and praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us and having an openness and a heart attitude that is right before God, but willing for him to fill us. So that said, how do we how do we pray for that then? How do we pray for an infilling of the Holy Spirit? Well, normally, I mean, not exclusively, because this wasn't the case for the first disciples or for the household of Cornelius. But normally the New Testament, you know, shows us that the Holy Spirit comes on people through the laying on of hands and prayer. So, you know, asking someone to lay hands on you and pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's the norm. 
But clearly, as I've, I've already given you the example, haven't I, of the first disciples, who there was no one to lay hands on them. Uh, and But the household of Cornelius as well, you know, Peter, who was probably still weirded out by the whole thing, uh, you know, with the vision that he'd had of the sheet and the not calling things unclean that God has made clean and trying to figure it all out and the mission to the Gentiles. Uh, it seems that he didn't lay hands on Cornelius and his household. Uh, and so laying on of hands is not a legal requirement demanded by God. That's really helpful because uh, at the end of this talk, I'd like to pray that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, it could be that you're sat on your own. Obviously, you're not in a church service where someone can lay hands on you. And so I'm really hoping that we can pray in a moment to receive the Holy Spirit and that he would sovereignly just come and fill us wherever we find ourselves as we are watching this. I think it can help us in receiving when we recognise that this is something that Jesus is doing, that Jesus is filling us with the Holy Spirit. So it's not this kind of uh, strange thing that's happening. This is our friend Jesus equipping us for life and ministry. Jack Hayford, who I've already quoted, uh, has written this in his book called Baptism with the Holy Spirit. He says, when we realise that Jesus is the one who baptises us with the Holy Spirit, we are able to have a richer understanding and deeper perspective on this experience. It shifts our recognition from the idea that this is something that happens to me to understanding that this, that this is someone who ministers to me and that someone is Jesus himself. So I think that's really helpful. A shift in our recognition from the idea that this being filled with the Holy Spirit is sort of something that happens to me to understanding that it is someone, the Lord Jesus himself, ministering to me through the Holy Spirit, who's my advocate and helper, who, who is with me always. And so this experience isn't strange or impersonal. It's the person of Jesus filling, in, filling us with the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, it's also not to be feared. Again, Satan will try and put us off this. I found just as I was getting ready to record this, I noticed this. Uh, in the bathroom, as uh, just it was in front of me, I had this towel and there was a little label on it. Uh, and the label says, keep away from fire and flames. He said, keep away from fire and flames, which is a very sort of sensible thing to do with a towel. Uh, but it just reminded me that we're kind of, you know, even as we, you know, we would fear fire in the natural, very sensible to fear that. But the enemy has tried to instill in us a, a fear that we would want to keep away from the fire and flames of the Holy Spirit that actually the, that the, the enemy whispers in us and says, oh, no, this isn't good. And you don't want to lose control. And that's for sort of fanatics and et cetera, et cetera. And we really need to repent of those kind of beliefs because actually Jesus is good. He says that we need the Holy Spirit. He's commanded that we wait to receive uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said that this is a good gift. Do you remember the passage where Jesus uh, is saying He's using the analogy of, of a father uh, who, even though a father might be compromised, we're all compromised in our own way. We all make mistakes. But he says, even though you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the good gift of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus appeals to us that, you know, God is good. The Holy Spirit is good. The Holy Spirit is a good gift. And so we don't need to 